Jean-Michel Jarre. Jean-Michel Jarre. I like to say Jarre. that at the beginning. Jarre. Jarre Gabor. Jarre Jarre Jean-Michel Binks. <laughs> Wait, no. Jean-Michel Me? Jarre Jarre Binks. What's one? Misa. Cynthia. You. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your co-host, Sean Hartman, three-time Guinness World Record setter for the least attended concert. <laughs> that's some beautiful foreshadowing. That's it. That's what it is. That's what I did. <laughs> I'm co-host Jeremy. Also tied for those records, and also hoarder of co-host Peter's, uh, I'd buy that for a dollar selections. I have all his records here in my house, <laughs> and I just keep them for weeks until I have a pile, and then I give them all back at once. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes I go to drop off a selection for him to have it in his possession and play for the episode. And I get like six or seven of my records in return because he just holds on to them as long as he can. True. Uh, yeah. So I am co-host Peter and I am the former commander of the Russian space station mirror. Ooh. See, now I thought for sure this week, someone else would have written a basically identical intro to me of all the weeks where we would have accidentally written the same thing i figured i had picked the lowest possible hanging fruit on this one no when you said it it immediately clicked and i was like yeah i should have done that <laughs> yeah i was gonna do that and then i thought someone else is gonna do that so i went a slightly different direction but there is foreshadowing in mine also true oh my so much foreshadowing it's not like our dear listeners were able to see the title of this episode and the attached album cover and already know what we're going to talk about. Jean-Michel Jarre. That's what we're going to talk about. That's correct. Yeah. And I'm going to play the first track from the album, which is Oxygen. Oxy is there a special way to say it to make it French? How dumb American do I sound right now? Oxygen. I think it's pronounced oxygen. I was wondering the same thing. If oxygen, <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was a French spe spelling of oxygen or what. But it, yeah, it looks like oxygen. We'll go with oxygen. Part one. <laughs> Why not? There's no way we could be wrong on that. True. Part one. We're gonna start at the beginning, just how Jean Michel would have wanted. Thank you. 
before I say anything about the music, I looked it up on the internet, and the title is French, Oxygen. Oxygen. Good to know. Like Phil Oxygen. (laughs) And that is now how I will will forever (laughs) think about this. Thank you. As far as the instrumentation we just heard, it sounded like a theremin was making its way in there, but was probably just a synthesized simulation. Yeah, it's uh, just bunches of synthesizers all by Jean-Michel. And looking, I don't see any theremins mentioned. It definitely does have some uh, similar theremin qualities to it. The instrumentation is all Jean-Michel, correct? True. He's on the ARP synthesizer, the AKS, the VCS3, the RMI harmonic, the Farfissa organ, Eminent, the Mellotron, and the Rhythmin computer. Farfisa. Farfisa. <laughs> yeah, this whole album is yeah. just Jean-Michel. Uh, he recorded it in his kitchen with his home studio which is far out for 1976. Yeah, not really the mecca of home recording (laughs) during that time. There was another major album that came out that same year, 1976, of that was recorded in a home studio. Boston (laughs) self-titled. Oh. A a practically identical record to this in every way. (laughs) I often confuse them. (laughs) understandable i am left wondering how our listeners have not heard of jean michel if you look as was hinted by our titles he has held the largest concert the second largest concert and the third largest concert ever in human history that we know of that we know of true (laughs) yeah there might have been like an Aztec concert that was bigger, but uh, mm-hmm. that's actually I don't even... that's basically what I knew about him going into this episode. Uh, that seems to be the thing that you always hear about him. Yeah, that's actually how I found him. I used to go to big festivals back in the day, and I got curious. I was like, what's the biggest concert that ever happened? And was like confused to see it was this guy that I'd never heard of in Moscow in 1997, and he somehow had three and a half million people. Like, I've been at concerts with around 100,000 people, and you feel like you're in an endless sea of people. So I can't even imagine, like, three and a half million. That's bonkers. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing everybody knows about John Michelle, if they know anything about him. Do you guys know anything else about him? You guys know anything before this? For the longest time, I just knew him as the guy with some kind of cool artwork on his albums that would just sit around forever at the record store. And I didn't put him on for a very long time until a friend of mine, Kalamazoo resident and synthesizer musician, Sid Redlin, bought a Jean-Michel record from me at a sale I was having and was just talking him up like, oh, I'll buy his music anytime I see it. This guy's a genius. Like, I've never heard 
anyone say anything about this guy before from what I remembered. And then I started checking it out shortly thereafter, played this record first because it's easy to find in those dollar bins and was just immediately blown away at how incredible of like synthesizer music this is. I mean, it's like on the same level of quality as like Kraftwerk or Tangerine Dream, but just doesn't seem to have as much hype here in the States for some reason. True. Yet somehow he got over a million people in Houston. Yeah. (laughs) Some people know who he is apparently, or at least know of his infamous legendary live shows. True. What about you, Peter? I remember reading an article in late summer of 2016, and it would have been right around the time that Stranger Things came out, and I feel like rejuvenated an interest in synthesizer music for a lot of people, so that might have been why there was an article about him. And I did a little Facebook research because I recall that I had made a post about him, and it was September 1st, 2016, I wrote, I wonder how Jean-Michel Jarre feels to have played to more people at once than any other musician and nobody knows who he is. And uh, Kalamazoo resident musician April Zamont from the Glow Friends and many other acts. What is the latest one? Tambourina? Mm-hmm. New record just came out and everything. Yeah. April responded, well, I do. Since I was five, bro. (laughs) Which made me chuckle seeing that. Uh, But that's, I think I might have checked out maybe this record at the time and was like, wow, this is top notch. But uh, since then, it's been in the back of my mind or, you know, hasn't, it's been out of my mind (laughs) since then until Jeremy said, hey, we're doing Jean-Michel. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy also is using my copy of this record. It's now his copy. I graciously gifted it to him so he would have a cool record to talk about on this podcast. True. I'll briefly mention, I went and visited co-host Sean in Philly since we both got our vaxes, both chock full of vaccine, and uh, we destroyed my digestive tract with pizza and cheesesteaks and played pinball in Asbury Park, and it all ruled. And Sean sent me home with his copy of this album. It was fate. And I really just knew the like concert thing and then have listened every once in a while I just get that feeling like I want to get I want to put that on because there's almost nothing like it there's some things that are similar ish but I don't know he feels he's like a one of one in my mind um I don't know if I'd go that far I mean I I think there's definitely a few contemporaries especially Tangerine Dream that we're making very very similar music at this time period in the 70s but there are not many artists who were doing this kind of almost classical synthesizer fusion style in in this exact kind of way as you know cinematic soundscapes but yeah it Jean-Michel definitely stands out for sure yeah I think the classical and the like composed aspect is what makes it feel unique to me but I'm frankly not super up on Tangerine Dream. I know like what it is, but almost never listened to it. Not going to lie. Well, if you like this, then check out Tangerine Dream, bud. You're going to dig it. You need to 
check out the Stratosphere album. It's a good starting point if you like this. Is that the one that came out in 76 as well? I think it is. It probably is right about that time. Uh, yep, yep. Stratosphere came out in 76. So if you like this Sean Michelle record from 76, that's a good place to start. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we get to the Spotify playlist. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Let's get into a little Jean-Michel <laughs> bio history now. Uh, Jean-Michel, as you may have guessed, is French. He's born in Lyon, France in 1948. He was the son of Maurice Jarre, who was a famous film score composer himself. He did the soundtrack for Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, uh, skip a few, and then you end up at Fatal Attraction and Ghost in 1990. <laughs> wow, that's a long career. Yeah, he didn't really know his father, though. His father left when he was five and moved to the United States, and he was left with his mother, Frenette Puget, who was a French resistance fighter during World War II and a survivor of the concentration camps. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, so he comes from... I don't even know how to put it. Now I feel dumb. <laughs> so pretty wild family to grow up from. He also... His mother would send him to stay with his grandparents for a few months out of the year every year. And his grandfather was an oboe player who was also a, an audio engineer and inventor who likely inspired a lot of what Jean-Michel would get into later in life and gave Jean-Michel his first tape recorder. Nice. It's good to have that family encouragement, family inspiration. Yeah, and beyond that, like, direct inspiration, his mother would take him to, I'm not even going to try and say the French name, but it translates to The Fishing Cat, a Paris jazz club where Archie Shep, John Coltrane, Don Cherry, and Chet Baker all played regularly. So that's where Jean-Michel said he learned to express things musically without using words. How could you not be inspired by being allowed to see all four of those players at different points live? Like, it would be inescapable at that point. Yeah, and that's just the beginning. Like, his mom would take him there, but he also, being in Paris, got to see a performance of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring that he said was highly influential. He remembers Ray Charles seeing him and... The song Georgia on My Mind just blew his mind. He also saw Ulm Kalsum's uh, final concert, who is one of the best-selling, well, the best-selling all-time artists in the Arab world, and is called Egypt's Fourth Pyramid. And on top of all that, he said he was inspired by the street performers that he would uh, get to witness. Yeah, I had uh, read all of those influences as well, and it, it definitely impressed me as a very well-rounded approach to creating music. Like, he, he just had so many 
good solid foundations to work off of you know to be able to simultaneously appreciate you know a highly intellectual classical approach to music and also a a purely you know emotional soulful approach from ray charles and see the the value and take inspiration from both is incredible yeah he really constructed all of these inspirations into what he was doing because beyond that I was reading an interview with him from 2016, I want to say, and he talked about how modern electronic musicians go down to Guitar Center and buy some keyboards and they can make a billion different sounds and textures. But when he was starting out, they were taking like scientific equipment from broadcast stations and stuff that like his his grandpa showed him and would repurpose it to make beeps and boops and just manipulate them into music. So they they had to invent the instruments they were working with and find like entirely new ways to express them that, uh, yeah, really feels like a marriage of all these influences. But before he became a, you know, legendary experimental musician. He played guitar in the 60s for a band called the Dustbins and studied at the same time at the Conservatoire de Paris. So once again, you get that blending of like highly emotional music of, you know, the rock music he was playing and the formal education he's receiving uh, at the conservatory. Yeah, I believe that was where Ravel studied. Oh, true. Yeah, we mentioned that um, just a couple weeks ago. Yep. And uh, he also studied under a handful of legendary European avant-garde musicians as well who have been mentioned on this show, like Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Keeps coming up lately. <laughs> coming up a lot. Are any... Stockhausen records, dollar records. Are we ever going to be able to actually cover? Um, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, technically, probably not, but classical records can be found cheap so easily sometimes. But who knows? Yeah. But I was going to say, hearing all of the highbrow intellectual approach and all this crazy training he received in music gives a whole new light to listening to these records. I, I think people. I think people who are maybe less familiar with synthesizers or how synthesizer music is made, it's easy to kind of think that, you know, you're just hitting one note and letting all the effects and oscillators take over. And like, maybe it's not a very in-depth approach to music making, but then when you hear like how much training and how much thought went into it, it makes you listen to the music on a deeper level. And it just makes it even more impactful for me thinking of it in that way. Mm -hmm. Let me drop an impactful song from this album. Do it. We're going to go to part four. All the songs on this album are just parts one through six. So we're going to jump ahead to part four. This was uh, the closest thing to a hit, I guess. They would play this in the clubs and discos when this came out. So here it is, part four, the, the mega hit.
So that one's a little bit more upbeat. It's almost like it's it's danceable, but not really. You know, uh, I love the rhythm parts of this record. That might be why it was almost a hit. Yeah, almost a hit. <laughs> the rhythm is cool on here, though, because it kind of blends into the background of the music really well. You know, it's not the beat front and center with some texture around it. It's still the, you know, drifting uh, melodic synthesizer loops that are going. And then the drums just kind of seem to sneak in and work perfectly with it. If somebody knows what video game those first notes are from, please tell me. I think it might be Golden Axe. <laughs> I don't, I'm positive that like do, 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 do is like from a video game I've played. Well, hopefully one of our listeners knows and can enlighten you. When you said that while we were listening, Jeremy, Sean commented that probably a lot of uh, people in the 1980s programming music for video games were familiar with, had listened to Jean-Michel. I, it's funny, I feel like a lot of Video game music of, you know, the 8-bit era or maybe even early 16-bit sounds either like synthesizer music from the 70s and 80s or early metal (laughs) is the other thing I hear a lot of. Well, that makes sense. So back to my dude, John Michel. He's studying with Stockhausen and he's starting to compose music in the early 70s for ballet, theater, TV. He's doing like ad jingles. And that's when he decides to make his first solo album, Deserted Palace, in 1972. He recorded, well, he recorded a whole lot more albums, but this one we're listening to is his third solo album. He recorded in 1976 and made him internationally famous. Initially, sales were slow. Can't imagine why. This seems like (laughs) immediately accessible music. (laughs) That was always my question with this guy. I was like, how did he get so famous and sell so many records with this like weird ass music? And then when I read that it, it took a while for it to catch on, I was like, okay, at least that part of it makes sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. And when it caught on was 1979 he performed an open-air concert for Bastille Day and in Paris and set the first world record by having more than a million people attend as he performed this album. And what really set his... what set his concerts apart and above and beyond anything else which drew all these people was his massive spectacle using lasers and video projections and fireworks, pyrotechnics. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Look up some videos of some of his big performances and it will blow your mind. He's using like sides of buildings to like project on and like do crazy lights with and you know people do some pretty extensive far out things nowadays but he was truly a pioneer of the like massive concert spectacle that no one 
competed with him in his day. Uh, yeah, it's certainly no one making this kind of like spaced out music too. Um, I mean, there's like maybe some slight comparisons in like the rock and roll world, you know, you think of like a band that I still despise kiss and they're like kind of extravagant stage show or there's parliament with, uh, with their big stage show. But the stuff Sean Michelle was on was just like, just head and shoulders above what anybody else was doing from what it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this would be jumping too far ahead, but the huge 1997 concert with the, that's the one that had three and a half million people in attendance. That that was the one where they had like a live hookup to the Russian space station mirror during this concert. Yeah. And there's like giant like, choirs and yeah, they're like using the city skyline that they're like lighting up in different ways to go with his music. It's insane. See, and like all of that makes the whole uh, record breaking concert attendance make a little more sense because you know, if you're at a concert with three and a half million people, chances are you're probably going to barely even be able to see the stage from wherever you're able to get in at. But if the entire city is part of the show and there's, you know, lasers and fireworks and lights everywhere, then you can pretty much enjoy it from anywhere. Any spot in your sea of three and a half million people, you're still guaranteed to have a good time. <laughs> and listen to some weird ass synthesizer music with three and a half million people. But, you know, I got to say, as someone who has done a lot of performing of experimental music, when you can combine it with visual effects that work really well, it is fascinating how easy it is to sell avant-garde music to, you know, quote unquote normies. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I even like watching movies that have really abrasive soundtracks to make people unsettled like people don't notice it when there's the visuals accompanying it yeah exactly they're just like oh that was cool and like the music made me feel a certain way and it fit with the movie and it was great but oftentimes if you just present people with challenging weird music like that they're just not be able to handle it i i think the two of you probably found that when you did the um what was the movie that you toured a couple years ago around halloween the Phantom Carriage? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, we did the live soundtrack. that Pretty abrasive stuff, but it really worked with the visuals mm -hmm. for that silent film. Yeah, exactly. I've done a handful of live scores over the years to old silent films. And yeah, that's interesting because most people aren't very familiar with old silent films anymore. And most people aren't going to want to go see avant-garde free jazz experimental music but when you put them both together we were actually like having pretty solid attendance at a lot of the shows um you know a lot of the tour dates were still pretty small but the kalamazoo shows always did really really well with that stuff mm -hmm. so well, but back to jean michel yeah it went very well for him after that record-breaking performance this album sold eight hundred thousand copies in the month following it Wow. Yeah, that really sparked off his fame. And then he continued staging these massive concerts. He did a huge one in England where he was on a floating stage and there was like torrential rain and Princess Diana was getting rained on and stuff. Yeah. And then, like I mentioned, the Houston one he did with NASA 
in some kind of like joint celebration with NASA and drew over a million people to that. Man, he was in with both NASA and the Russian space program. (laughs) Yeah, actually, he was supposed to include a saxophone part by saxophonist and astronaut Ronald McNair. But unfortunately, Ronald was in the Challenger rocket explosion that uh, took his life and, yeah, put a a kibosh on that idea. He wanted to have him perform in a weightless environment. Yeah. He had the saxophone with him on that flight, from what I understand. Like, it was fully planned out and maybe had even been recorded. Wow. He's had, yeah, a lot of um, pretty heavy defeats with some of these projects that he's planned on with. I mean, he's done so many grandiose projects that it kind of makes sense that some of them would have failed. But yeah, that one was pretty wild to hear about for sure. Yeah. He went on to do like, from what I could count, he did 26 albums. There's a whole lot more information on this guy if you really want to dig in that we don't have time to get to. But one bit near and dear to my heart is that he did the first album that was recorded in 5.1 sound for 5.1 systems in 2004, an album called Arrow, which for our listeners out there, I'm a total surround sound dork for some reason. <laughs> reasons that he is not even able to understand <laughs> agreed that's around the time i remember the those 5.1 specific releases starting to come out and i can't think of the last time i heard of one coming out though yeah they're pretty they still... few and far between mostly just like beatles reissues for the dads that actually bought the surround sound systems and me <laughs> <laughs> The real dad. The true dad. But he, in 2016, he worked with Gorillaz on their album Humans. He played Coachella in 2018. Uh, Similar to, was it Keith Jarrett? He actually held a large virtual concert shortly before this pandemic started. I think Mm. that, was that Keith Jarrett who also did it? It was... I don't think it was Keith Jarrett. We did talk about an artist who was doing, I think it was Les McCann. Oh, right, right. Yeah, Les McCann. Yeah, so similar to Les McCann, Jean-Michel held a New Year's Eve 2020 virtual concert that he performed in Notre Dame and drew 75 million viewers. And then the (laughs) pandemic hit, and it became cool to do virtual concerts. Ahead of the curve. And now the pandemic is still going, and no one wants to see a virtual concert ever again. True. (laughs) But he released an album as, as recently as one month ago. He just put out an album called Amazonia. So he is still cranking out actually very interesting music. And one thing I read that really intrigued me is he described how when he started his journey into electronic music, they were trying to make the instruments reach the level of expression of acoustic instruments. 
but he now feels that digital has not only reached that point but surpassed it and now there's like more dimensions of expression available in electronic music than is even possible with acoustic music hmm. he's probably not wrong there no it makes a lot of sense to me so mm-hmm. it's amazing to see an artist that started in the 70s still be as relevant and successful and hardworking as he is nowadays. I feel like so often when we're researching these bios of seventies artists, you know, inevitably somewhere in the late eighties or early nineties, they fall off and kind of lose momentum and lose critical favor, et cetera. But this guy just keeps going. It's nuts. Yeah. He did some electronica album. Well, the albums were called electronica where he was playing with, all kinds of like famous modern like M83s on there Moby I don't have the list in front of me but it's like a lot of modern artists he's working with still including Edward Snowden he had Edward Snowden that he arranged a meetup with in Russia and had to like do a bunch of crazy spy stuff to even be able to meet him to talk to him about using some of his audio on a track he did on this album and he said that edward snowden he was attracted to because it reminded him of his mother he was like a modern resistance fighter Hmm. yeah that's interesting he's also a official unesco goodwill ambassador i don't know what that means but nice (laughs) yeah it's some some sort of important international title (laughs) sounds impressive I just assumed one of you guys would know what that means. I just thought I could say it and then have you guys explain it to me, but apparently that failed. I know UNESCO does like the world heritage sites, like cultural sites that are like protected or celebrated. So I'm guessing it's related to that. I'm guessing there's some kind of world cultural organization. No way we could know. I don't. Yeah, there's really no way this could be found out. Well, I've been just running at the mouth here. I want to jump into like the middle of part six because you may have noticed we like just get started on these songs and then it's uh, all we can legally get away with playing. So we're going to jump into the middle of part six so you can kind of hear what these songs sound like once they're built up. Thank you. 
there's all those layers built up. As you can hear, there's a lot of rhythmic things going on that counter each other. You have like fake bird sounds, like washy ocean sounds. He builds a whole world in these songs, and it's far out, man. <laughs> yeah, the nature sounds, especially the kind of manufactured nature sounds, reminds me a lot of Irv Teibel's Environment series that we talked about recently. There definitely is some elements there. You can, you can definitely hear the connection between the, the New Age music and what was going on there. The other thing that I find really interesting about this record is from reading about his conceptual approach to making the music. He wanted something that was mainly focused on melody and the rhythm to be kind of in the background. So especially on the tracks when there isn't those drum machines going, it kind of reminds me of what we talked about in the Stephen Halpern episode of where you don't necessarily know when the next thing is going to happen. And it kind of forces you to let go of the sort of control when you're listening and just allow the sounds to wash over you. It's a really fun experience to just actually sit down, turn this record up and play the whole thing start to be start to end. I like to just get lost in it. Added bonus if you have a bunch of lasers you can set up in your room when you do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go buy a handful of laser pointers at the dollar store, turn the lights off, and have a good time. Well, Sean, what do you have for us uh, on that, that Spotify playlist you begrudgingly put together for us every week? <laughs> oh, you mean the playlist that were my idea and that I really enjoy making every week? Are those the ones you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I bet you guys are going to be really surprised to hear that I put a lot of synthesizer music on this week's playlist. That tracks. Mm. Interesting so, choice. Yeah, if you're down with the spacey synthesizer sounds, then boy, have I got a playlist for you. There are artists we have talked about before on the show, like Larry Fast and his project Synergy, Stephen Halpern, um, there are artists that we've referenced on the show that we probably will not really ever be able to actually feature a record of, like Tonto's Expanding Headband or mm, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Some other records maybe we could do. I don't know. Uh, the Twin Peaks soundtrack, Morton Sabotnik, another synthesizer pioneer, White Noise, another synthesizer pioneering project. And then I put some of the more new age style things on here, like Laraji from his Brian Eno collaboration record, Ambient 3. And then there's also some of the more new wave synthesizer type things, like Giorgio Moroder from some of his soundtrack work, put a Human League track on there from the album Dare that we talked about real early on in the show. Episode 3. Mm-hmm. Craftwork, of course, Beaver and Krause. Kitaro, another synthesizer, Bargain Bin Classic artist. Uh, Mike Oldfield. Lori Anderson, lots of good stuff on there. You can find that on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this and every other season two playlist. Hell you yeah. out there, listener, devoted listeners, hear us. If you really want to help us out, please leave us a kind review on the platform that you listen to us on. It can go a long way. For us reaching other listeners. Future, I'd buy that for a dollar. Fans. So yes, please do that if you have just a couple minutes. 
leave us a few words of kindness. What are our final thoughts for Jean-Michel? One thing I read in an interview with him that clicked for me is that Jean-Michel saw himself as part of a new way to do music. Like, to him, he was not participating in a genre of music. It was not, you know, synthesizer prog or whatever you might call it. He saw what he was doing as a new way to create music, which was using electronics. And I think that might explain how so many people can be into him because now, I mean, electronic elements have worked themselves into almost all genres and entire genres are solely created out of electronic music or electronic instruments. So that kind of clicked for me as to seeing him as this giant figure, though in our American eyes, kind of obscured from view. Yeah, or at least our uh, American eyes of a younger generation. My final thought is that I think it's really easy to assume that some different subgenres of music are only more valuable records. And there are so many high-dollar synthesizer records and fancy expensive reissues of you know, B-movie soundtracks with kick-ass synthesizer scores to them. And you can kind of get lost in it and spend so much money on cool records. And it's easy to lose sight that even in these like hyped up genres that are really popular right now, you can still find some equally good music in the dollar bin. And right at the source too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that's interesting with Jean-Michel is that he's from an era when artists typically went under a band name moniker. And it's weird because it's kind of flipped now. I feel like there's a lot more solo artists nowadays than there used to be. And I think it's easy when you're scouring the bins and you see a solo artist name for some reason, I feel like a lot of people are less intrigued than if it's like a cool band name or, or you know, like Tonto's expanding headband. That tells you it's going to be far out, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you see Jean-Michel Jarre, a name like that. You, it's just, for whatever reason, I, I feel like people might be more likely to pass over artists like that. But never judge an album by its cover or an artist by its name. <laughs> True. Though I think if you judge this album by its cover, you'd probably be pretty close to knowing what you're about to get into. It's pretty far out. Mm-hmm. You can get lost in the cover and get lost in the music. Back in the days when you would actually stare at the uh, album cover while you listened, get lost in the world the artist has created. Mm. An activity that I'm always advocating for more people to do. <laughs> I like to flip this record around and have Jean-Michel just stare into my soul. (laughs) He's a dapper young fellow. Still is. Still is dapper. Yeah, I saw a picture of him from his interview in 2016, and the dude looked like 42, even though he's got to be like 70 now or something. 
<laughs> I did note that. Yeah, I watched the What's in My Bag video that he did not too long ago. I was like, man, he still looks good. Like, I mean, he's been a millionaire for a long time, so he can afford to look good, but still. <laughs> All right, that's enough, uh, you know, boot licking for Jean-Michel. Let's get out of here. <laughs> I'm guessing, let me guess, we're going out on one of the parts of Oxygen. True. No, we're actually going out on Spice Girls. <laughs> Trick. Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> we're going with part three to end it. Side A, track three. I am co-host Jeremy Ruggles. And I am co-host Sean Hartman. And I am co-host Peter Cook. Thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy Thank That for you. a Dollar. Thank you.